Good morning to you. It's always a pleasure to be at Lake Mary. And uh, thank you for those who I planted in the audience to clap for me. That was really nice. Payment will be delivered after the message. Welcome to winter in Florida. Isn't that great? A uh, little, little nip in the air. And uh, we, I always enjoy it when it cools down. I'm, I'm sure you do too. Diocletian uh, was a Roman emperor. Yeah, he was a Roman emperor from the years 284 through 305. And uh, he was an interesting man. He was born in modern-day Croatia, the Dalmatia region of Croatia, on the Adriatic, right across the Adriatic from, from northern Italy. Uh, he was born into a family that was not all that wealthy, did not have a whole lot of status, uh, but he was a determined uh, young man. He was determined that he would make his way in the world in a, in a profound way. Uh, the way he decided to do that is he joined the Roman legions. He became a soldier, fought for Rome. And uh, over the years, because of his excellence uh, in, in battle and his excellence in terms of leadership, he rose in the ranks to the point where he became a very powerful uh, Roman general. And the year 284, as most power struggles in, in Rome went. Uh, the person that had the most backing in terms of, of soldiers loyal to him uh, would eventually then take over the leadership of Rome, and that's what happened in 284. He had these soldiers. Uh, they instituted him as emperor, and he began to rule. Now, he was an interesting man. He actually was quite a, uh, a good leader in many respects. He reformed some of the laws, made them more fair. He uh, cleaned up the financial difficulties that Rome had and uh, became very, uh, very astute in terms of making sure that, that uh, budgets were balanced. He secured uh, uh, Rome militarily. He, he fought and won several battles and, and uh, brought peace to a large section of the Roman Empire. Uh, also, what he did, uh, which was interesting, he decided in the year 293, about nine years into his reign, that he, he didn't want to do it all anymore. So he divided his kingdom with three other men. They, they call this the, the uh, Tetrarchy. And uh, the other men were Max, Maximius uh, and uh, Galenus and Constantinus. And these three men, along with Diocletian then, divided the kingdom and ruled their sections of the kingdom. And uh, he did this willingly, and he, he also did it quite effectively as well. Uh, he didn't like Rome, didn't like living in Rome, so he decided that he would, uh, in, in the midst of his leadership, he, he got out of Rome and he went back to his homeland in Dalmatia. And uh, my wife and I visited Eastern Europe recently and, and uh, in Split, Croatia, is the ruins of his palace that he built for himself and lived the rest of his life. There's an artist's rendering of that. Um, it's right on, on the sh uh, shores of the Adriatic and uh, massive walls, uh, beautiful, beautifully done, the... the front part toward the water is, is the, the place where, where uh, he lived with his family. The back part was, was the soldiers and all the servants that, that uh, ran that, that massive palace. Uh, we toured it recently. Uh, the, the bottom level, the basement, looks, looks like this. These massive arches that uh, took years to build. And this goes on and on. It's, it's quite, quite astounding when you see it. It's impressive. And uh, up, up top, there's not a lot of the buildings left, but some of the ruins are left. This is the peristyle uh, that uh, was built. It's still there, and it's and just a, amazing work of, of uh, building and, and amazing works of art. Uh, he, uh, 
he, he went there uh, toward the end of his, his uh, reign and then decided that he would uh, stay there for the rest of his life. Interestingly, and I didn't find this out till I toured this area, that, that Diocletian really isn't known that much for any of what I've just told you. What he's known for is that he and his uh, co-leader uh, co Galerius uh, summoned and went to an oracle to, to determine spiritually where Rome was and, and if Rome was in danger. He, he was, uh, he was a, a believer in, in, in the oracles and what they had to say. And the oracle came down with, it, with, a, um, uh, with, with the result of saying that there, there are problems within the kingdom. And uh, the indication was that the problem within the kingdom was the Christians. The Christian church had grown in Rome steadily, but under the radar. They, they weren't honored, they weren't really recognized, but they were more or less tolerated through all the emperors that, that uh, came and went through these first two, three centuries. And uh, now Diocletian and, and uh, his other leaders said, hey, we believe that the Christians are really going to, to ruin our, 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 our empire and uh, we're going to uh, do something about it. And, and he instituted what's known as the, uh, the Diocletian persecution. And it was considered uh, the bloodiest persecution uh, that ever happened in Rome. You know, we hear about Nero and Caligula and all these other emperors that were negative against Christians. This was the bloodiest and this was, was the most uh, dynamic. Uh, they raised churches to the ground. They, they took church leaders. They beheaded them. Uh, any, anyone who was deemed to be a Christian, their property was confiscated. Many, many men and women lost their lives dur during this persecution. It lasted all the way from year, years 303 AD to 312 AD, nine years. And we were touring this, this palace, and uh, I was thinking to myself, what would it be like to be, have been a Christian back in that, that time? And I also thought to myself, I wonder what they would say. And I think one of the things that they would say, I, want, I know one of the things I would say is, when is the kingdom going to ever come? When will the kingdom ever come? Fast forward to today, most social scientists and historians would agree that at present, uh, we live in a, what they call a post-Christian culture. Believers in Jesus uh, in, our, in our society today were often characterized as bigoted, racist, sexist, judgmental, and ignorant. And I was uh, thinking about where we are today and, and where I was as, a, as a, a, a grade schooler. I went, to, I went to grade school at Nathan Hale Elementary School in Toledo, Ohio. Typical grade school uh, construction of that day of a rectangular building made of brick, two stories, two halls and, and classrooms on the side, gym in the basement. It, it was just, it was just a, it would survive a nuclear attack. It was that strong. It was just that, that was that, my school. And from kindergarten to eighth grade, I went there and we would line up in the morning in front of the main doors and the bell would ring. We'd walk up two stair, stairwell uh, to the first floor. And I remember the picture, there was a painting uh, that was hung on the wall. It was a massive painting. It was a big wall, and, and the painting was really big. I, I remember looking at that painting for years, never realizing what it was till I think three or four years uh, going into school, maybe fourth or fifth grade, I realized it. I realized it's a picture of the Good Samaritan. There was a, a, a man who was bending over a man who obviously was uh, uh, injured, and he was caring for him. There, there are other things in the, in the painting. It was beautifully done. 
But here's, here's a, a Bible picture in a public school hanging there for all to see. Fifth grade, uh, we were given the option, and, and most of us took it, to go across the street to a little Methodist school. And for an hour, once a week, we received religious instruction. It's a public school. And, and that, was, that was instituted and support by our school system. Christmas, we sang Christmas carols about Jesus and, and uh, about, uh, learned about their, their, uh, how they were formed and all that. Uh, I'm not saying that we've got to go back to that, but I, all I'm saying is this is a different culture today than it was back then. And sometimes I think, you know, is God really at work? Is, is the kingdom really coming? So OJ said that we're in this series called Kingdom Parables, and they're parables formed in Matthew 13. And uh, we are going to, to do the shortest of the parables, uh, verse 33. It's in your bulletins. Uh, we'll have it up on, on the screen as well. Uh, let me read uh, this parable to you. Verse 33 of Matthew 13. He, Jesus, told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. There it is. This is the word of God, right? So you might think, oh, one verse, short sermon. Well, not so fast. There's a lot of things I can get from this, right? That's the old guy. They give, we'll give the short, short passage to the old guy, see what he has to say. So let's, let's, let's sort of dive into this a little bit. Okay, so what are the four ingredients of bread? Flour, yes, very good. What? Salt, water, and yeast. That's it. You can throw eggs in later, but that's, that's sort of like special stuff. Really just four. Flour, water, salt, and yeast. You put those together in the right combination, uh, you potentially can have bread. And Jesus gives this very common illustration, this, you know, something that everyone's used to, and he, he uses this metaphor for the kingdom. Interestingly, he talks about the kingdom of God being like yeast. Yeast, or leaven, as it's called in, in some of the older translations, uh, is almost always used in a negative sense in Scripture. Uh, in the Old Testament, leaven is... is, uh, is talked about in a negative way. When you brought your sacrifices to the tabernacle or eventually the temple, uh, you were not allowed to bring bread with yeast and it. it had to be unleavened bread. Passover feast, unleavened bread. And for seven days, you could not eat any bread that had leaven in it. It had to be unleavened bread, uh, commemorating the, the escape of, of the children of Israel from, from uh, Egypt. Uh, and Jesus, uh, in, later on in, in the New Testament and other, other passages, talks about yeast in a negative sense as well. But he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, the yeast of Herod. Yeast being uh, an element where a little bit can affect a large mass uh, of um, substance. So, when's the last time you made bread? Anyone make bread in here? Good. That's good to know. It's, it's sort of, I've never made a loaf of bread. I, you know, I buy it at Publix and uh, Dave's Killer Bread is what I buy. It's really good. Uh, but I, I've never, I've never uh, made a loaf of bread. But, but picture this now. There, there's three measures of flour, what, what the older, older translations say, or a measure was 20 pounds. So here's Jesus very specific about the, the, the amount of flour. There's 60 pounds of flour here. 
60 pounds. Imagine 60 pounds of flour. You're going to make bread. And so there's a, there's a woman who's got this these ingredients. Um, I did a little research. A typical loaf of bread is made up of six cups of flour. One cup of flour weighs four ounces. I know there are eight liquid ounces in a cup, but the, the, the terms of the, the weight is four ounces. One loaf of bread uses one and a half pounds of flour. So 60 pounds of flour would make approximately 40 loaves of bread. And to make one loaf of bread requires one quarter ounce of yeast. And that bit of yeast completely affects a mass 24 times its weight. So here's this woman, here's the picture. There's this massive amount of flour and she's mixing yeast. And I don't think she's taking, you know, 60 pounds and just pouring it in. I think she does it a bit at a time. And, and as you do this and you put these ingredients together, now it takes kneading. If, you're, if you actually make bread, you put these ingredients together, you mix them up, and then you have to knead it. You have to, you have to work those, those elements in so, so they permeate the whole loaf. And that kneading for one loaf of bread could take anywhere from five to 10 minutes. So to knead, to put together these ingredients, to knead 40 loaves of bread would take up to seven hours. It'd be a full day's work. And that's not including the raising of the dough and the putting the bread in the oven. So this isn't just a, a one-off 10-minute job. This is, this, is, this is a long period of time that people would, say, would assume that's happening. That's, that's what you get when you get 60 power, pounds of flour. So what, what's he saying? What's he communicating about the kingdom when he uses this, this example of bread and, and uh, the yeast? Well, I see three things, and, and I'll just share them with you, and, and hopefully you can uh, be encouraged by them. But I think one of the first things Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God is, by and large, silent. It's silent. Uh, the effect of yeast takes place in silence. There's not any indication uh, at all that, that the yeast is working outside. You assume that it is. There, there's, there's no noise that's made. It's, it's, it's done in silence. When I was a senior in college, my local rock station did a top 100 popular songs up to that point. This is in the early 70s. So we were all, all my buddies were listening to it and started at the 100th and went on up. And a lot of our favorite songs are in there. We were all, all waiting for the top song. What's the top song? What's the top one of all the 100 popular songs, the most popular songs? And uh, they, they made the right choice. It's a song by Simon and Garfunkel, the best group that ever existed. And um, the, the song was The so Sound of Silence. And to this day, when it's on, I turn it, I'll turn it up loud. My wife will turn it up loud. It's just a beautiful song, Sound of Silence. It's a profound song. And, and, and uh, it, it talks about I think uh, something that, that we've lost the ability to do. We've lost the ability in our culture, I believe, to listen. And more importantly, I think we've lost the ability to be silent. To really just stop and not speak. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 17:38. Solomon pins these words. Even a fool, when he is silent, is considered wise. It's sort of my life's verse, if you know what I mean, right? Even a fool when he's silent is considered wise. So I, like you, probably most of you on social media, I read social media 
people proclaiming all of their opinions of all types and, and uh, all persuasions. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got something to say. Everyone wants, wants to, to, to state what they believe. And I read those, and uh, it can be pretty disturbing. I'm going, oh, I don't know how I want to respond to this, and, and how, should I, how should I react? And I finally got to the point where I've got to confess to you, I, I'm really not interested in your opinions anymore because I'm not even interested in my own anymore. Zach Van Dyke, our, our Herndon campus pastor, a couple of weeks ago said in a sermon that he took a Twitter, he, he's on a Twitter fast. And I think we, we should probably just go on a, uh, on a speaking fast sometimes and just sit in silence. The kingdom of God, in part, is silent. We, we don't know what's going on. We don't know, know what, what God's up to. And many times he does this in a way that, that we don't discover that for a long period of time. So here's the question I ask myself when I, when I want to say something. Is God going to be honored by this? Does this really honor God? Is this proclaiming the kingdom? And I, yes, we need to proclaim the gospel, and I'm, I'm glad to do it, and I'm, and I'm not ashamed of it. But we don't need to argue people into the kingdom. We certainly can reason with them, but no argument brought anyone into the kingdom of God. You cannot manage another person's life, especially if they're, they're related to you. You can't manage them. So will the kingdom ever come? Uh, yes. But the kingdom of God is not some showy demonstration given to impress. The kingdom of God is working its way through history steadily and, and for the most part in silence. It's working its way through history. Second thing I see in this in terms of the yeast is the yeast is saturating. The yeast works its way through the bread to affect every part. If you don't work it all the way in, you don't get a good, good loaf of bread. So it's saturating. I shared with you before that a year and a half ago, my wife and I went to Israel. It's the first time we were there. I didn't know exactly what to expect. And uh, I, I was really pleased with the trip. It's a, if you ever get a chance to go, I'd encourage you to go. It's, it, it was a wonderful time. And uh, we had a, a, a Jewish tour guide, Tal, who uh, wasn't a believer, but he was just knew, knew the scripture. And uh, he was just the most gracious person. And we were looking at what tour we should go on. And we were online and uh, we were looking through these tours and we found a tour that said that it was a slow tour through Israel. It was a slow tour. And we thought, you know, we could probably use a slow tour. We don't want to rush through Israel. And when we got there, we realized that the slow tour had a lot of slow people uh, there. There were a lot of old people, older than us. And, and we we're just going, okay. They were great. They were wonderful people. And one family in particular, uh, the, the, this family brought uh, their mother, their grandmother. She was 98 years old. And uh, she's in a wheelchair. One of the most lovely, marvelous people you ever want to meet. Just, just exuded love, God's love. And uh, we had the privilege of spending these days with her. And the last day when we were talking about the memories of the tour, Tal, our... our our Jewish uh, guide said, you know, he was talking to this woman. He says, I saw you at the garden. When we went to the garden tomb, Gordon's tomb, and uh, saw that empty tomb, he said, this woman got up from that wheelchair. She, he said, I never saw anyone move so fast in their life going toward that tomb. It was just a, it's a kingdom of God person. 
Just a privilege to know her. Another experience Renee and I had over there, we were at the Dead Sea. It was the morning uh, after we'd gotten there, spent the night at a hotel, and we went down to see the water. We were coming back from the sidewalk around the hotel. There were some um, ladies taking pictures there, obviously tourists, and, and uh, they were speaking Spanish, so we figured they were from South America, Central America. And uh, as we waited while they took the pictures, and then as we were going by, once they were done, one of the women shouted out my wife's name, Renee, Renee. And uh, Renee looked, she said, uh, I think I know you. She said, yes, you came and spoke to a conference I was in in Ecuador 10 years ago. And uh, you, you were sharing how we could use this material you brought us to reach other women for Christ. And we sat there with us, you know, we stood there with this woman and, and just, just sort of recounted, the, you know, the, the experience they had together. Halfway around the world, a kingdom person pops up. You never know when a kingdom person is going to pop up. We visited Mount Carmel when we were in Israel, where Elijah had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Prophets of Baal are trying to call down fire on their sacrifices. Doesn't happen. Elijah's there, douses his sacrifice with water. Fire comes down, consumes it. He's the victor. Drought's going to end. Elijah confirms that. Elijah's like double victory today. And I've proven myself. And he's all excited until he realizes Jezebel, the queen who, who does not like him, is, is, is sending people out to take his life. And he hears of this and he runs for his life. Goes from northern Israel all the way down to the desert of southern Israel. From Mount Carmel, ends up in a cave on a mountain, Mount Horeb. 2 Kings 19 tells the story, God brings a great wind. It says God wasn't in the wind. There's an earthquake. God isn't in the earthquake. A fire. God's not in the fire. Finally, he reveals himself. And, and I like the, the, the old King James verse. And God shows up and he speaks in a still, small voice. A gentle whisper. And Elijah, as he's, as he's going down, he, he tells God, I'm tired of it. I don't want to do it anymore. There's no benefit in this for me. Just take my life. I'm ready to go. I, I, I'm, I'm too discouraged. And he tells God in that cave, he says, I, look, I'm the only one left. There's no one in Israel who follows you anymore. God says, no, you're wrong. He says, I have 7,000 men and women who have not bowed their knee to Baal. 7,000. And he encourages Elijah and he goes back and does the work of God. Sometimes I think I'm the only one. Will the kingdom ever come? Only one left. You ever feel like that? No. God's saturating the world with kingdom people. God has his people all throughout the world, and they are doing his work. 98-year-old women from Colorado, 40-something-year-old woman from Peru, never know when they're going to pop up. My son-in-law Justin keeps me up to date in, in the cultural world. I'm glad for, for people like that in my family. I want to keep up to date in the cultural world. And a couple months ago, he told me, he said, Dad, he said, um, there's, a, uh, there's someone I think you'd really like. And I had told him that, and I you know, confess this to you, I sort of like rap. Uh, I, I, and uh, I, I don't like the crude rap or anything like that. But I just like that uh, way of, of, of communicating. I love the art in it. I, I love the passion of it. 
And uh, he said, there's, there's someone I think you really would enjoy. His, his name is Nathan Firestein, and he goes by the initials NF. And I said, well, I'll, I'll listen to it. And I was proud of myself. I was able to download his albums onto my phone, which I think that's a really good step for me. And uh, NF had uh, this summer the number one album in the country. Number one. And uh, I said, Justin, what's the deal with this guy? He said, he's a Christian. I said, really? I said, I'll listen to his music. So here's um, the second verse of a song he has, he has on his album, Mansion. The song's entitled, I'll Keep On. If you ever have a chance to listen to it, it's marvelous. It's passionate and, and uh, it's, it's full, full of, of, of heartfelt communication. So the second verse I just want to relate it to you. I just, I just love what he says. So, so here it is. Uh, I'm not going to wrap it, by the way. I'm just going to read it. So I think by next, next week at Waterford, maybe I'll be ready to wrap, but not, not quite yet. This is what he says. Trust is something I'm not accustomed to. And I know the Bible says I should always trust in you. But I don't ever read that book enough. And when I have a question, I don't take the time to look it up or pick it up. It collects dust on my nightstand. I'm just being honest. Please take this out of my hands. I have no control. I'm just a person. But thank the Lord I serve a God who's perfect. I do not deserve the opportunity you've given me. I never knew what freedom was until I learned what prison means. I'm not ashamed. I don't care if they remember me. My life will always have a hole if you're not the centerpiece. Take me out of bondage. Take all of my pride. If I don't have a savior, I don't have nothing inside. Take all of my lust. Take all of my lies. There's no better feeling when I look in the sky, in your eyes. It's amazing. You never know when God's kingdom is going to pop up. And he does it through his people and in his way. Kingdom of God is silent. It's saturating. The last thing I see in this, it's slow. Just slow. The yeast takes time to have an effect on the bread. You have to set it aside to let the dough rise, even before you put it in the oven. Takes time. Slow. We were in a restaurant in, in Serbia. We went to Eastern Europe and just a couple months ago. We found a restaurant, nice restaurant, really gracious waiter, older gentleman, and uh, just served us this wonderful lunch. And, and uh, we were communicating with them. And toward the end of our lunch, you know, I called him over. I said, hey, uh, we, need, we, need our, we need to have our check. And, and he looked at us. He knew we were Americans. He said, oh, you Americans, you're always in a hurry. And we were. We had to get back to our bus. We had to be on a schedule. You're always in a hurry. And I, I, I would have sat and argued with him a little bit, but I had to go. You know, it, <laughs> you know I... Aren't we always in a hurry? I feel like I'm always in a hurry. I, I drop something on my clothes. I get it stained. I got to get it out right away. I got I to go. My wife says, don't do anything. Let's look it up. Let's figure out how we get the stain out. Not me. I'm just, I'm at the sink with soap and water. I'm just doing this. Let's get the stain out, right? And I'm making it worse. Why? Because I'm in a hurry. I'm driving. There's a two-lane road going my way. There's a stoplight. I always have to be in the line that's shortest. I don't even have to get anywhere anytime soon. But, I, you know, what's up, what's up with that? We're at a wedding 
few years ago, it was a woman who'd been on a three-year mission stint in South America, and we were talking about the wedding. And uh, I said, how do you enjoy it? She said, oh, it's great. I said, well, what are the weddings like in South America? Did you go to any? She said, oh, I went to plenty. What are they like? She said, well, they're a lot different than here. She said, when, when you get an invitation for a wedding there, they'll say one o'clock. If you show up at one o'clock, there'll be nobody there. It, there's, it's just nothing. And if you wait around, maybe 2, 2.30, people come, start putting some chairs up, and you know they'll just sort of wander in, and about 3.30, 4 o'clock, there'll be a ceremony. And uh, there'll be the, all the things that happen after that. And then the reception, she said, the reception, no one's in a hurry there too, and it will go to all early, early hours of the morning. She, she leaned forward, she said, I miss South America. Miss South America. Kingdom of God slow. Will the kingdom come? Yes. But not as fast as I'd like it to come. And Peter, I shared this verse with you a couple of weeks ago, but I'll share it with you again. Peter says it beautifully in 2 Peter 3, this whole concept of the kingdom. 2 Peter 3, 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Let me repeat that. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Will the kingdom ever come? Yes. The kingdom is slow. It's not my plan, it's God's. So, the modern day location of that Diocletian Palace is split, Croatia, we visited there. Um, he um, was interesting because he's, I think he was the, one of the only Roman empires who ever willingly just said, okay, I'm done. In the year 305, he said, I'm, I'm I'm just going to stay here the rest of my life. I've got everything I need. Uh, you all can run the, the, the empire. I'm done. Uh, he remained adamant in the persecution of Christians, and he was a, not a very nice guy in terms of that. In fact, his wife and his daughter had secretly converted to Christianity. When he found out, he had them both put to death. That's how... That's how adamantly opposed he was to anything Christian. So the year 306 comes, and who's going to take over? Well, the, uh, all the Tetrarchy, they're too old, and now their sons are starting to die. Constantinus's son is named Constantine. And he has also risen in, in the uh, ranks of the Roman army, and he now has loyal followers, and they proclaim him emperor. And he then takes over in 306. And Constantine, uh, some years later, becomes a very devout Christian. In the year 324, he, he proclaims his faith in Christ and, and uh, uh, rescinds all of the restrictions on Christians, gives them back their property, and becomes an avid supporter of the Christian church. Can you imagine that change? Diocletian to Constantine. Where's the kingdom? Oh, there's a kingdom person. So another picture I want to show you, it's a, a tower in this 
in, in these ruins. And uh, this tower was, was built m many hundreds of years later, but that tower sits over a, a chapel that has been established in these ruins and it functions to this day. The chapel was originally the crypt that, that Diocletian wanted to construct so he would be buried there. He wanted a place for his burial. And the Christians, once Constantine came into power, came to that place and said, you know, we, we, we need to do this differently. And they removed Diocletian's bones from that crypt and they made a chapel out of that crypt. And to this day, God's worshiped in that place. So what can we gain from this? Here's how I apply it. And if you can gain anything from this, good. I encourage you to as well. Here's how I'm encouraged by this parable. I'm encouraged to be silent. I, I'm encouraged to listen to God. And I'm also encouraged to listen to others. I'm encouraged to be expectant. God's kingdom is saturating. It might be silent, but he's saturating and it's working even to this day. My daughter was visiting us recently and she said, Dad, have you ever, have you ever heard of Michael Lorenzen? Michael Lorenzen? No, I have no idea who he is. Oh, he's a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. Well, I don't follow the Reds. I don't know. I wouldn't know who he is. She said, oh, he's fascinating. And uh, I said, well, what's the deal? He said, well, he's a Christian. I said, well, tell me about him. Well, the big deal was he had on his pitching arm, he's right-handed, he had the numbers one period, one period six. Just, just there, tattooed on his arm. Everyone's going, what does the 116 mean? What, what's going on with that? Mike Lorenzen, you know, in, in some meeting with the press, finally said, hey, that's, that reminds me of Romans 116, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. See, I'm a Christian. And that's my reminder that I'm a Christian. And that's, that's my message to the world as well. 24 years old, at the age of 18, strung out on drugs, going nowhere, beach in Southern California. Some person he didn't know and has not ever seen since came up and shared the gospel with him. And he thought to himself, here I am high on drugs and I'm hearing about Jesus. And all of a sudden he began to understand and his life was transformed. These kingdom people keep popping up. The other thing that I learned from this is I need to be still. I need to not get ahead of God. He's working his plan. He's not working my plan. He's working his plan. So, it may be silent to this kingdom. It may seem slow, but it is saturating our world. God will always have his way upon this earth. doesn't matter who's in control, seemingly. God's purposes will always be lived out. Kingdom is doing just fine. Men and women, that kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of it. Thank you that your kingdom is, is the place where you are in charge and that it is being formed here on this earth, even though we might not be aware of it, you're at work. And I pray for myself, every man and woman here, that we would be kingdom people and that we would be in a place where we wouldn't be discouraged, but we'd be encouraged the fact that you, are, you are, are working in our lives and the lives of others to establish your rule. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.